0: As you know, we've in this worship series on being immersed in the biblical story, and we're looking at a whole book of the Bible every Sunday, and this week, we're looking at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a wonderful book. It's beautiful. One of the hard parts about reading the book of Jeremiah is that it's such a mixture of all sorts of genre mixed within. It's got prophecy. It's got historical narrative. It's got letters within it. So it contains all of these different kinds of genres within Jeremiah. And so it can make it a little bit hard to read. I say that just because the text that you're going to hear now from Jeremiah 29 is a letter that was composed by the prophet Jeremiah, sent to, as you'll see, all the elders and the people who are in exile in Babylon itself. And so now we get to hear the contents of this letter that was written to the people of God inside of Babylon from Jeremiah. So, I invite you now to follow along in the screens in front of you, or if you have a Bible yourself, to open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14 together. Listen to the word of the Lord. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans, and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. The God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place." For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the gift of God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I have to sort of confess a little bit that I've read Jeremiah a bunch. I've read Jeremiah a lot in my life, but I didn't know all the details and all the stuff about Jeremiah, and it's such a big book that I just felt like I had to read a lot this week to kind of get a grip on what all was taking place in this wonderful book in the Bible. And so I grabbed a couple of commentaries and I read a lot this week. And I was struck just by the significance of Jeremiah as a result of the history of exile. You heard it in this passage too. This incredibly transformative thing happened to the life of the Israelites, which was exile. Now I want to try to explain this just quite briefly because it is pivotal to the whole of the Old Testament and there's a significant shift that takes place and you can hear it a little bit in Jeremiah 29. As you know, we've been in this series, right? And there's this whole kind of narrative thrust of the people being freed from Egypt and then God promising them a land to go dwell in and to live in. And then They have a monarchy and they lived there well for hundreds of years. Well, as well as they could live given the kind of monarchies that they had, right? And the kind of errors that the kings made. But they got to live in their promised land. But Israel and the northern and the southern kingdoms, they were directly in between two other world powers, the Assyrian kingdom to the east and the Egyptian kingdom to the south. And those world powers didn't always see eye to eye on things. And there was the northern and the southern kingdom in between. And the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom in the 7th century BC. And then the Babylonians took over the Assyrian kingdom. And when they did that, then they went to war with the southern kingdom. And they came and occupied Jerusalem and Israel for a long period of time. And in three different moments in Israel's history, the Babylonians took from Jerusalem all the significant people in the community. The rulers, the scribes, the artisans. You heard that list in the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 9. The Babylonians took all of those people and brought them into Babylon. And that's where they lived. Now, the Babylonians did this three times in the history of Israel in pulling people away. So what you heard today was a letter written by Jeremiah when he was in Jerusalem, not obviously after the third exile, but somewhere in between the first and the third, somewhere in there that he writes this letter to them, and he sends them the word of God that he hears to them. This is the context surrounding Jeremiah's story. Now, partly what we also have to say about exile and why it's so formative and what it truly destroyed was that for the people of God remember how significant it is that Jerusalem, frankly, exists. And not just Jerusalem, but that after Solomon builds the temple, the people of God truly believe that God himself dwells within the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is inside the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in Jerusalem. The people believe that God's physical dwelling place is right there in Jerusalem. Right there. And... In 587, when the Babylonians come again, they destroy the temple, the palace, the walls of Jerusalem, and they disperse the people from those lands altogether from then on. Jeremiah runs and hides in Egypt. Now the people believed that because God was inside of the Ark of the Covenant, right there in Jerusalem, that they would be protected from harm from other nations. Even though they were always in between these world powers, that they would somehow be safe and secure because that's where God dwelled. they put their hope and their trust in that. And that hope and trust, well, it, it didn't work out as you hear. In 587, the whole city was laid waste and the people were dispersed all throughout the ancient Near East. And not just that, but could you feel the tension in the text too, right? That God says, I sent you into exile. I think this is one of the hardest things to reckon with when we look at Jeremiah and some of these other Old Testament texts, is that they say that, I did this to you. Like, God's people were unfaithful to God. They were worshiping other gods. And so God says, I am using Babylon to punish you for your sin. It's a really hard thing to read and it's a hard thing to wrestle with, but that myth of sort of believing that they would be safe and secure because that's where God dwelled and that's where God lived is gone as a result of exile. They lose that. They lose that belief in that myth that they could be safe because that's where God dwelled in his physical presence. Over the past few coffee hours we've had, we have talked about all sorts of things in those times. And it's always interesting just to check in and see where people are and what they're thinking about and how life is going for them. And for the past couple of weeks, some of you have mentioned that you watched the inauguration a few weeks ago. And I didn't have a chance to watch much of it, but given some of the enthusiasm that you had shared, I watched a few highlights from the inauguration. And one of the things I came across was Jennifer Lopez singing, This Land is Your Land. I don't know if any of you saw that. It was only four minutes long. But watching her sing that song, I had this whole range of emotions. (laughs) I had this whole range of emotions as I listened to her sing that song. I was born in the Bay Area, and I grew up around here as a little kid, and I remember singing that song in kindergarten, you know, and I remember singing that song as an elementary school student, and I remember singing and feeling so much pride in singing that song. You know, the verses that talk about from California to the New York Islands. It's like, oh, I live in California, or the Redwood Forests. It's like, oh, there's the Redwood Forest. They're so close to us, and just that hope and that myth of you know, this land was made for you and for me. So on the one hand, I listened to the song with kind of like this great enthusiasm and joy and childhood exuberance of just thinking about that song being sung. But then on the other hand, I also had this mixture of emotion too, because for the past few years, I've tried to do a lot of learning that I didn't learn in school, you know, things that I had no idea about. And a couple of years ago when I met Robert Shaw Romero who came and preached here last year and it was such a joy to have him come, I had met him at the Calvin College Worship Symposium that our staff went to for so many years and I just said, tell me some more good books to read. I I always ask these scholars, tell me the good books to read. And Professor Romero was like, oh, I got this really good book you should read. (laughs) It's by a Roman Catholic priest and it's called The Galilean Journey and it's really about like how... Jesus' life and story and living in Galilee speaks to the Mexican-American community. And he said, you should read this book. And again, like I said, I was in lots of really good schools most of my life, and I knew nothing of the Mexican-American War. And then there's two pages in this book that talk about the Mexican-American War, and I think it explains some of those like, mixed emotions I felt. And maybe you have mixed emotions when you hear a song like that sung today too. And so I just want to read one paragraph from this that's about the Mexican-American War. Now, maybe you know some of this history already, but in 1846, the United States went to war with Mexico, and they sent 10,000 troops through Texas down into Mexico. At that time, Mexico was a bunch of um, lightly connected city-states. They weren't really a unified federal government. They didn't have much of a military at that time. So the 10,000 troops basically just walked into Mexico City, and they occupied it for a period of time until Mexico entered into a peace treaty with the United States, and it was known as the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty. And here's a paragraph about this treaty. This is what this author says about the Mexico-American War. Under the terms of the Guadalupe Hidalgo Treaty, Mexico ceded to the United States a vast territory, including the present states of California, Arizona, and New Mexico, and large sections of Colorado. Nevada, and Utah. It also approved the prior annexation of Texas. The territory ceded to the United States was approximately half the size of pre-war Mexico. Whoa. In return, the United States paid Mexico 15 million dollars and guaranteed the property rights and the political rights of the native population. He doesn't mean indigenous, but he means the native Mexican population that was living in those lands. The conquered Spanish-speaking people was guaranteed the right to retain its cultural autonomy, its language, its religion, and traditions. And how thoroughly these provisions have been ignored is evident in the subsequent history of the Southwest. Since 1848, there has been nearly unbroken history of direct and indirect, spontaneous and institutionalized violence throughout the West and the Southwest. And there's a variety of stories that go on this book that talk about how uh, the people were promised that if they owned property, they could keep property, but all those promises were broken after that peace treaty was made. And so that history just goes counter. It makes me feel kind of confused about the lands that we live in and that, frankly, there are people who are really living in exile here You know, sometimes we might read these stories in Jeremiah and just go, oh, that was something that happened two and a half thousand years ago, but no, no, no. exile is a very real reality for a lot of people in a very real and present way, even in the lands we live in, right? And so I think that feeling of just like joy on the one hand and confusion on the other, I bet all of us have a similar kind of experience when we think about the lands that we live in, in California, ourselves. That we can see some of that living itself out in this present moment, in this time too. And it can feel hard. It can feel frustrating to know how to make our way through these things sometimes as a result of the real exile we feel in this world. And also because as Christians, I think we do want to do good things in the world. We want to bring about good things in the world. And so it can be disheartening to hear these myths said about history that aren't actually true to our history. But we do want to see a better thing moving forward. So... So what's the turning point? What's the huge turning point that happens in Jeremiah? As I said, they had this belief and this hope that you know, God was in the temple itself and God would always protect the people, but that doesn't happen, right? Instead, the people are exiled and they're dispersed throughout the ancient Near East. But what does happen and what we hear in this letter is that God's word goes to them and says to these people who are in exile, to build houses and live in them, to plant gardens and to eat what they produce, to grow your families, to seek the welfare of the city you're in, to pray for it, because in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I think what's striking about this passage is that what transitions is not necessarily a new thing, but it's a return to something that's been beautiful all along in the Old Testament scriptures, which is covenant theology. The idea that where God is is not necessarily in a physical location, but God is in God's promises to God's people. If you read more of Jeremiah, you'll hear a common refrain that happens all throughout where it says, I will be your God and you will be my people. If you could talk about what covenantal theology is, that's it in one sentence. God makes this promise to God's people that I will be your God and you'll be my people. It's the promise that was made on Mount Sinai to the people. Even the promises in the giving of the 10 commandments. Like I'm giving these things to you because I want you to flourish and to live well wherever you may be. And so I am going to be there with you in promise and in covenant, not necessarily in a physical distinct location. And so this return to kind of the roots of their faith that I think is a really beautiful and something that's filled with incredible amounts of grace for the people of God. You could imagine them to go, well, thanks, God, for giving me a future of hope and you telling me you have plans for me to flourish and prosper, but why am I here? (laughs) If if you gave me plans to flourish and prosper, why, why did I have to go through this altogether anyways? Why can't I just stay in Jerusalem? I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this for 70 years. This is your plan. You could imagine people to be a bit jaded about that. And yet, even in the midst of what is horrendous, what's filled with lament, there's God's grace for them. No, no, no. I am in my promises to you. I am there in my promises. And you could hear it in the back half of that text too that I read today too. Seek me with all of your heart and I will show you where I am. Pray to me and I will listen to you. God is in God's promises, my friends. And I think that is so generative for the life of faith for those people who are in exile and for the people who are dispersed. Can you imagine people that knew these scriptures in their hearts after exile remembering this letter, this word of God that came from Jeremiah to the people and going, oh, yeah, God is in God's promises. I may not be living in the lands that I want to live in right now but I know that God is with me right now through these promises and just how much life that would bring to the people of faith, right? So build homes and live in them. So I'm with you in promise. Build gardens and you may have new soils. What kind of possibilities could emerge as the result of planting the seeds in that fertile soil? What will grow up in that space? God will continue to do good things in and through this community of faith as a result of this remembering that God is in God's promises. That's where God is. That's where God will always be. The people of God were dispersed for thousands of years after Jeremiah, and it's this important pivotal turn back to the roots of who they are and remembering that God is there in God's promises and that God will make good on God's promises. I hope that this is a comforting word to you too as you hear this, you know, as you hear this story from Jeremiah. And just because I think, you know, if anything the past year has been sort of anxious for so many of us in so many different kinds of ways, there's been so many things to worry about, right? There's been so many things to be anxious about. And I know as many people that were, you know, sort of hip to church world and saying at the very beginning of the pandemic, oh, the church isn't a building, the church is the people. (laughs) I'm sure you remember there on social media for a week or two, it was like everybody was saying that. And as much as we say it and we know it and we think it and we believe it, there's also just this gap of reality that how much we enjoy the memories of the physical spaces that we worship in, and seeing the people that we love, and seeing the people we care about, right? I mean, that's been a really tough year. And yet, I think we do believe and we know that truth, right? That this is where God is. God is in God's covenant with you, and these promises that God has made. I think, you know, this next year is going to be fascinating to see what happens with life in the community of faith, in our larger world at Live!, Pastor Mary was just at a uh, conference this last week with some great friends that she's been in covenant relationship with for 30 years or so, and she shared some notes from that, and everybody and all these pastors are wondering about what's the future of the church gonna look like? What's the future of what we do gonna look like? And none of us have answers for that right now, necessarily. There's some data points that suggest that all the old trends are gonna continue. You know, some of those trends like declining membership, declining identification as Christians, especially in the West Coast, that some of those trends will have accelerated. And I know that brings up a lot of anxiety for us. And yet, the beautiful thing, I think, in the midst of all of it, is that God has been at work through this time, too, no doubt. And God promises to be a God to give us a future with hope. That just as disciples and people that loved God hundreds, thousands of years ago, needed to be given a vision for the future and where they were going to go as far as it was about their covenant relationship with God, God does it. God always does this for them. And so for us too, I know that there have been powerful ways that God has shown up in the result of our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And what precisely it looks like, I'm not entirely sure what that looks like, you know? I'm not entirely sure exactly what that looks like. It's going to be a mixture of the best of the past, but also the ways in which we are going to continue to connect moving forward. Last week, I had, again, another Bible study with the high schoolers and with the middle schoolers, and I was just struck by how joyful it was to have this kind of time together with the high schoolers and the middle schoolers and how much they enjoyed it. You know, and two years ago, it would have been like pulling teeth to get middle schoolers and high schoolers to come and have a Bible study at the church, but they somehow really enjoyed doing this together over Zoom. So the future of where we go is gonna look like a mixture of what's been so beautiful and good and where we've seen God at work this year and where we've seen God at work in the past. And it's not necessarily a thing to be afraid of, but we just hold on and trust and hope with God, right? That God's in God's covenant with us. That God promises that if we search him with all our heart, he will let us find him. That God tells us to build houses and live in them and to seek the peace and the welfare of the city. And perhaps that's why I mentioned earlier just a bit about the history of our past. And even though it's a fraught history and there's bad things, one of the things I think I love about this church community, and I'm sure you do too, is that's a distinct marker of who we are, of loving our city and seeking its welfare. And we've seen our welfare as we've sought the welfare of the city too, and as we've prayed for it. So I hope that as you read Jeremiah, my friends, you would see this pivotal turn for the people of God then, but maybe we could return to the roots of who we've always been to as a people who remain and live and are given just faith and generativity from covenant relationship with God. Some of the old traditions that we used to have about space and people and things, they may or may not come back, but what will always be there is covenant love of God and how we enter into covenant relationship with each other. And for that God, I'm so thankful. And for that friends, we have one another and we have God. So there's Jeremiah. I will be your people, says God, and you will be my people. Join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we do pray for the city that we live in, for San Carlos, Redwood City, for Belmont, for San Mateo, for other places on the peninsula, and there's a lot of anxiety in our world today for a variety of reasons as you know, God, but we lift it up to you. We pray for peace in this place, we pray for well-being, we pray for healing to come into these lands, and God, I give you thanks for the folks who love this city well and are seeking the peace in the midst of our community. God, I just pray that you would help us to know your promises, that we would be able to hear them fresh again today, the promises that you give us a future of hope, and you give us a future to to be well, and to prosper, and to find life in you. Lord, may that be true for us this day, and we lift up this worship service to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.